0: Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins and prominent educational thought leader,
1: Adriana De The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission. Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment these are their stories
0: you know i really really like the idea of demonstrating value in education not just values which are those essential beliefs that unify all of us around what is important but how we can bring benefit to the lives of others through those values The amazing Adriano De Prado talks about values and value proposition. Christine Jung, the CEO and founder of Beyond Story, has a remarkable narrative to tell us about the values and value proposition that sits behind learning, behind living, behind leading and working. I'm so excited we're getting to talk to her today. I can't wait. Let's go.
1: Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor and their exciting new app,
0: Voyage? Of course, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders, and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. Voyage is a purpose-driven way for students to plan their future, experience life, and thrive. They'll map and evaluate their progress on their journey as they build their character and the healthy habits that support it. Mentors and peers can check in on them and provide reflection and feedback as their crew. Best of all, it's free. Search Voyage on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store or visit the link in the description to find out more. Life's an adventure. Let's go.
1: Bill, I'm really excited to be with you today. And I know that you're anticipating that I'm going to throw some shade on the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy, but I'm not. Because yesterday I was having a conversation with someone about my experience living in Rome for a period of time when I was studying at a campus there at ACU. And I stayed in a suburb called Trastevere. And when I described to them what Trastevere was like, I actually said, well, during the day, it feels like the great unwashed of Fitzroy. But then in the evening, it comes alive like Fitzroy with the bars, the cafes, the movement. And I just kind of felt that maybe all my shade is just envy. A bit of concession there to begin with.
0: <laughs> Do you know, it's, that's a, that's almost a road to Damascus experience for you there, Adriano. <laughs> almost, almost.
1: Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our very first guest here uh, um, as part of Series 9. Can you believe it, Phil? We're in Series 9. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, Christine, I'm going to ask you the very first question, and that's a question oh. that we ask all of our Game Changer guests. And that is, tell us about your story and how you got to where you are today.
2: Wow, what a big question to start with and it's interesting that you asked that question because I've been working with my coach to really work out my why because I need to pitch to invest very soon for my latest venture so the why is very strong in me and I I guess for a lot of game changer guests that you interview the why is very strong and my story was I was a international students came to Melbourne when I was 17, all by myself. And the deeper to that story was that I grew up in a middle uh, class Chinese family in Hong Kong and I was not a typical Asian kid. I was very expressive, very emotionally sensitive, very creative. And that wasn't very that wasn't a, a, a trait or a quality that really embraced even by my parents. So I actually fleet, um, not fleet, but I kind of like feel very free when I came to Melbourne to really explore who I am and really feel a sense of I guess loneliness back then when I was 16. And hence you can see the link why I'm all about building people connection and now starting venture on loneliness and helping leaders organization to build a connection. So, yeah, that's the story that I started. I was a migrant, finding who I was. And probably that's how that led to my passion in psychology. Mm-hmm. So I studied psychology. I, I I think on reflection now is I wanted to understand what is inside me logically. I want to put an explanation to what is all this in me. And since then, I've become a psychologist specializing in organizational psychology. I first started my career in a psychometric testing company. I love data, obsessed with data and human. So it's a beautiful combination of uh, the passion in me is science and people. So these are the two combination of my passion. And then I've been practicing since then for 15 years now. So that's, yeah. that's my brief story.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's really fascinating sitting here, listening to you. And thank you very much for sharing those kind of early years. You know, you started your response by stepping into the space of your why and giving us a little bit of an insight uh, into the moment, perhaps, uh, when when you made some decisions about, well, I need to be a little bit truer to who, who I am and, and, uh, and you've, you've taken this big leap forward. You've come to a country that's foreign to you. Yeah. Foreign, but perhaps familiar in some ways. Uh, we're not that that far apart in terms of geography. Um, and, and at 16, you started to kind of explore this new place. And what I heard you kind of touch upon there was that there was a bit of isolation or a bit of there was a, you weren't sure where you fitted in straight away?
2: I didn't fit into my culture. I didn't fit in to the majority of my high school life, like the way that I feel things and behave, because I use my emotions. And in school, many really, particularly in Asia, school Mm is all academic results, logical thinking, and you know all that. So I wasn't that, and I feel very lonely back then when I was teen. Um, and then when I came here, I need to adapt to this environment again. And yes. it only taught me, I think, don't know how many years when I become mature and able to adapt and embrace mm-hmm. who I am, then I'm able to shift. You know what I mean? Shift in a way that I don't lose myself into becoming something else, someone else. But I'm being myself, but with that flexibility to adapt to different environment and talk to different people from different culture. And yeah. at the same time, I love myself. You get what I mean? That kind yeah. of state.
1: Yeah, I, I think that what I'm hearing you share with us is a real awakening, an awakening of Christine uh, through the transition period of the restlessness of, of being in in, in in a school system that perhaps didn't fit you, you know, um, and didn't acknowledge your difference and your uniqueness uh, and then you come to a, to a new place uh, and, and there's great degrees of freedom for you in terms of, of being simply just exploring who you are. Uh, and, and I love you sharing that because that leads me to my next question about your work with Beyond Story because mm. I feel that there's a, there's a nice link there. And we're probably going to explore your why and, and a bit of your purpose as a thread now throughout, throughout our questions. But my understanding is that your consultancy specializes in optimizing this notion of psychological fitness. Yeah, in in every human so that they feel that they belong, that they're fulfilled, and there's this empowerment piece. And that that speaks so closely to your own story that you've just shared. Yeah. How can organisations, particularly schools, best support individuals to connect to the world within them, but also with each other and, of course, with the places that they serve?
2: I think there are many layers to answer your questions. I think first and foremost is about... When we talk about human connection, it's actually not that complicated than you think it is. So I think we have overcomplicated a lot of things. And also in school, you probably in a better place to, to to share that with me as well. And I think the first and foremost is when we talk about connection, we don't just connect intellectually; we connect emotionally. So even the basic question around. How are you? How many of us truly answer that question when we connect with, you know, your colleagues or uh, with with your student? So when I talk about connection, is really about practically is how do we make everyone feel psychologically safe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can explain more of what the terms mean. Sure. Um, to open up, to really help the kid sitting at the corner the most quirky one to feel safe to really be themselves to to really leverage that quirkiness or to talk about things in their own way but still be seen and heard and i think as teacher or as whether you work with your 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 teams in school in a meeting how do we enable that voice to come out mm-hmm unique voice to come out that's what I mean by psychological safety
1: yeah and, um, and uh, again I love what you're sharing there because we often talk about psychological safety and uh, one of the things that we're really big on at, at uh, Game changes and of course uh, School for Tomorrow is the sense of, of deep belonging you know so mm. there's, an, there's, there's an inclusion safety piece in, in, in that uh, and an identity piece talking about identity uh, I want to explore this a little bit further with you before I hand it over to my esteemed colleague, who's who's jumping at the bit to get in there and and really press this questioning. I can see it, I can feel it, I can feel the vibes through the through the Zoom screen. Coming, 20- it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Mate, it's it's coming. coming. In twenty twenty, in twenty twenty, um, the Asian Australian Leadership Summit recognised you via their forty under forty most influential Asian Australian awards. First of all, I got to say congratulations. That is an amazing accolade. And it's not only a celebration of you, but it's also a celebration of the significant contribution and leadership that Asian Australians make to our society. Um, So thank you very much, and it's a wonderful celebration. So talking about identity, talking about belonging and inclusion and feeling safe Mm. uh, to be able to then contribute and use your agency, because that's what I'm hearing you say, use your agency then to make a positive contribution to not only yourself, but, of course, the, the people alongside of you and the places you serve what does that type of recognition mean to you?
2: I really love that question. That means to me that I think it's not only to me, it's almost even having that award for Asian Australian and be award together with another 40 amazing individuals, mm-hmm. it gives me a sense of collective tribal power, if that makes sense. Well, we are all Australian, it's, it's really about being seen and heard and being valued as our unique contribution as an Asian. We think differently, like not only Asian, but other culture as well, mm-hmm. right? I just speak from my lived experience. So it's to be seen as, you know, people talked about you can be what you cannot see. Mm-hmm. I actually very disagree. I mm-hmm. actually say you can be who you can't see up there, but it takes grit and resilience to get there. So what it tells me is there are hope for for kids, like for future kids that have Asian background to look up now and say, actually, I can be what I can't see. Mm -hmm. And because of more of us are showing up, it almost become a model for them. So it, it, it really create this generational wisdom for them to actually look at, oh, and that means a lot to our collective. I know you have something buzzing there. Yes. So I want to finish this. It's almost this collective identity is stronger. Mm-hmm. Not, not only me. It means a lot to me mm-hmm. when the collective identity is so strong and to be seen and heard, that means so much to me and to my work, mm-hmm. because or I'm all about passing my legacy on. What does that mean to our kids? Sure. What does that mean to our next generation? That kind of that kind of intergenerational legacy, I guess, to pass it on.
1: There's real power in in your sharing the value of the collective. One of our challenges, I feel, in 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 kind of very Anglo Western. Uh, developed countries is this quest for perfectionism. We measure everything, you know, uh, and it's always a, a striving particular ways. But but there are some cultures across the globe where collectivism is a, is an aspiration, not individualism. Uh, when, I, when I navigate through that, that list of, of uh, uh, Asian Australians who have been recognised across every endeavour and field imaginable, it heartens me because I'm a product of migration too, Phil's a product of migration, and each wave of migration has its own growing pains, you know, when, when we true. first come to, to, to a country that is that is foreign to us. Uh, and, and we have to flex and find our way and purpose. And, and the collective uh, efficacy of, of a group that keeps showing up and saying, I'm here, uh, 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 we have value. And, uh, and if there's no set at the table, we're creating our own table. Uh, you know, I love the power in that. But you kind of escaped my question a little bit. Because yeah. you, 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 kind of, you kind of balked at the idea and you, and you spoke about the collective, which I love the power of it, as I've demonstrated. But, you know, you started this conversation today about your journey and the wrestling of the time in Hong Kong and finding your identity and then coming to a country like Australia mm-hmm. and allowing yourself to kind of flourish.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to know,
1: I really want to know, and I'm sure our audience want to know what does that recognition just mean to you personally? Forget about the, yeah, the yeah, collective yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and that movement, because that's a given now.
2: Yeah. 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 See, I'm I not letting you off.
1: I'm not good. letting you off, Christine. Yeah.
2: You are not letting me off. <laughs> that That's good. Good. And to be honest with you, and the audience that's my first award ever so it's significant for me in a sense that i wasn't i wasn't an a plus student
0: mm-hmm. i
2: wasn't and particularly in the asia particularly competitive study environment and work environment even my own parents and my best friend could not believe i can be a psychologist <laughs> It's true, and when I told my dad I want to finish my master and become a registered psych, he said, oh, I thought thought you will finish your fourth year and you will come back and find a job in a bank. I'm like, what? I told you I will become a psychologist. And then that surprised him. Mm -hmm. And I think a very long answer to your question is that this really show that my greed and passion is the huge part of who I am. And that's my success. That's my magic for success. And i also, that proof to many people, and I guess people that didn't believe in me back then, they're probably surprised. And that actually is very interesting. I'm always the black horse in the background that really because of my greed and I'm a futuristic and visionary. So I'm not the strict, smart student, but I always say something that no one think about before. And and because it's not proven in terms of your, how good your report or how much A plus that you have got,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. people may not believe in me in the first place. That's my whole life. Really, that's my whole life. And it's so interesting that in our society, we need to give award to people to actually let people to see what you can do. I'm very grateful for the award to really bring my magic to the surface and people then believe in me more. And that shift the whole, of course, uh, how people see me, that kind of thing and uh, reinforcing how I see myself. I guess that's the, that's the long answer to your question. Thank you.
0: Christine, thank you for what you've been sharing with us. Um, yes, I, I have this equivocal relationship with awards as well too. Um, it's a really interesting challenge to, to do that sort of wrestling between the individual self and the realisation of what's inside and then the need to meet or replicate the, the standards of others. It's, it's, it's in many ways the sort of stuff that we talk about when we talk about the development of character. And our research tells us, you know, this this notion of the wrestling between who you are as an individual and and where you fit in is essential. I'm hearing in your story a great deal about the power of self-determination. Yes. How can schools learn from stories like yours about the importance of liberating student voice agency and advocacy and increasing the amount of self-determination in learning.
2: Every student needs to be understood their unique power from very young. And teachers need to be equipped in doing that. It's only when the subtle magic, you know when you were little that your subtle magic is not really mastery, but is just showing a little bit of here and there, here and there. I think it's really critical for the teacher to provide the environment to nurture those those subtle magic, if that makes sense, and then to bring it to light.
0: So let's let's pick up on that notion. Thank you. Let's pick up on that notion of bringing to light because what I want to do is I want a contrast between psychological safety and taking risks in learning. Because one of the challenges I think that we have in contemporary society, particularly around our tertiary learning environments, but also creeping into secondary, is this notion of a safe space where people are not challenged to stretch beyond where they are right now. And so what is the difference between creating the conditions of psychological safety where a student can stretch into who they might become versus imprisoning people in the here and now? I
2: think it's growth mindset, isn't it? And students need to know that their intelligence can shift. So they need to understanding when I fail, I believe that if I work hard or change some of what, how I do it, how I do or how I say or how I behave, then I will be better, master's tree. So it's a growth mindset that really create, need to be really nurtured. Uh, in, a, in a teaching environment or in school so that the kids know that or the students actually know that, ah, oh, actually it's not, if I fail, this is not set in stone. I can develop that more and I can use my strength to compensate what I'm not good at. So it's a growth mindset and make them feel safe to go for challenges.
0: Okay, so there's so much here, which is, you're just. Uh, some, I, don't
2: I, know. No, I, I think
0: I think you did. I think you did. I'm going to get onto something in a moment because I think there are layers of the research that we're, you know, this is stuff that's really only emerged in the last twenty or thirty years, really, in understanding about how people grow and how people learn, and how, with the best intentions in the world, if we if we don't get the if we don't get the application of the research right, we're going to end up with people who are actually there's a disincentive to learn. Rather than an incentive to learn, so in our research we would talk about, or my 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 uh, our esteemed uh, colleague Brett Adams would talk about the secret source of high performance schooling, and part of that are relationships where you nurture, challenge, and support Absolutely. in e- in equal measure. And that part of the problem of school is that you can nurture too much. You know, you can you can wrap people up in cotton wool. And, and be so sweet and lovely that you're never sitting there and going, come on, come on. You know, it's, it's Apollinaire, the poet, used to talk about the notion of the push to fly, that sometimes, you, sometimes people need a push to fly because, you know, they, they, they need to believe in themselves and you need to show that belief in them along the way. I am interested, if growth mindset is important and we need to demonstrate it, what is the role of measurement, of psychometrics in helping us, to demonstrate the story of growth?
2: Because you need to know if that works or not. And each individual have different motivation, intrinsic motivation to grow. And they're learning, and you probably know both of you, how we learn is very different across culture, across gender. So those research is still lacking do we learn from our head or do we learn from our heart or do we really do we uh, which and guts you know guts you know that we talk about intelligence center we talk about head heart and body are we utilizing those or understanding how we learn through these three centers at school so that what i mean by like you know we need to use some measure in place to look at students like before a certain learning intervention and after and look at how they learn I think that's critical
0: and do you think that's the case for not just learning but also their social and emotional health do you think how can schools best support individuals from this emerging sense of identity to learn to grow to feel their wellness
2: yeah I think it start with very like is. It start with the everyday curriculum, isn't it? It's, it's just about how we teach, how we interact with the students. Do we start with a classroom with meditation, feeling the body? Does the student actually understanding what all these emotions mean and how they impact on their study and their stress level and performance? Are all those embedded in everyday? classroom life do, do we have learning session about emotions do we have practical session about how we show empathy between kids I think it's the everyday rituals and practice at school
0: if this is about rituals and habits across an organization it's also got to be about individuals building those habits themselves so Christine what do you do to maintain your own psychological fitness? What do you believe allows you to be the best version of yourself?
2: I do meditation twice daily for 30 minutes. And I wrote three intention, what qualities I want to bring to my life every morning, three of them, such as kindness, compassion, embrace challenge. So I do this every day. And at the end of the day, I looked at, did I actually bring those qualities out? So I I can plan it looking at my diary or if there is a very important and difficult conversation, then my intention that I roll one of the three could be showing compassion to self and to others. So then if something is like a magical pill, then once I put it, like write that down and put it away, it for somehow it will happen during the day because it's the absolute intention. This is the way I start my day. That helped me to stay fit throughout the day psychologically.
1: I've loved this interchange between yourself and Phil because there's a real kind of introspection piece going on and uh, that what you've just shared about your own practices, about uh, your own psychological fitness, there's a deep introspection going on around your self-care. And I love how, how, how you've modelled for our listeners the importance of simply tuning in, you know, tuning in deeply and really understanding, understanding self. So I just want to push that a little bit further then. If organisations like schools, for instance, can best support individuals in this self-identity piece, in this emotional health piece that you're really articulating so strongly in it, and, and this, this deep sense of belonging, how can we help move from that to the optimization of high performance?
2: In student or in teacher?
1: It could be the whole the whole school environment.
2: Yeah, and I think the optimization of performance is really about how fit are you personally mm-hmm. to carry everyday work. And also there is a collective fitness that I always talk about is together, are we fit to be together? Are we giving each other voices to speak when each other need to talk? Are we dealing with crisis effectively and efficiently? So there are a lot of individual skill, for example, self-compassion, listening, uh, empathy, giving attention to to your colleagues. It seems very basic, but it's not basic when crisis happened or Mm -hmm. we emerge in everyday life. So those practices actually build fitness slowly when you talk to each other and then collectively if all of us do it together it becomes a collective fitness. Does that make sense so yeah, it's absolutely from start from small and then become big and it moves from self to the optimization of performance in that sense.
1: It's interesting because sometimes in school settings, there's lots of different measures that are applied to schools and school environments, particularly when they're going through like a, a cyclical review process. And one of them is around school climate uh, yeah. and, and, and the health of the organisation. And sometimes those measures can be critical of the school not creating an environment uh, that supports the individual. But what I'm hearing you say is that, yes, that's important, but it's equally important for the individual to take ownership of their own self-care and 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 their responsibility in 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 being part of that bigger picture. So it's not a it's not just that it's not being done to them. They've got to take ownership of that as much as the school has as and the leadership of the school have to take ownership of that as well.
2: Very very good way of explaining it. I think it's two side. It's always two sides. Mm-hmm. One is you're right. Is the self responsibility part, but if the most responsible person, the most person that have self-care walked into an environment that is mm-hmm. toxic, that is not supportive, that's no leadership, it doesn't work. So what you were talking about and what I often talk about to leaders and our HR professional is about job design, mm-hmm. practices, communication practices. Does your school have basic technology support to your people to communicate? And how good the quality of the communication across the school and the culture of people, how how do we show up for each other? That is not one person job or a Mm -hmm. job. It's the whole school. It's a system. A system. So there is a system side of uh, responsibility as well as the individual for sure.
1: Yeah. I love that. I love that. Beyond Story uh, weaves kind of data-driven and creative approaches to expand its human human capacity and, and, of course, human capital, often to kind of navigate complexity. And we're living in a world now that is very, very complex and moving very fast. Mm-hmm. Can you share some ideas of what this actually looks like in practice?
2: Yeah. So that looks like when we when I talk about complexity, I talk about polarisation. So polarization in opinions, polarization in my ideas. And we get into a very complex world with we are so impacted by the news, by what we hear, and then we bring it to work. And that opens, and when we, when we talk about complexity is during conflict, I have seen teams break down because they were talking about their belief in vaccination, for example. Teams just break down, family breakdown, or even political uh, conversation. It is getting really strong, particularly in these two years. So the complexity is that, and what does that look like? It's really about how do we challenge each other, bringing bringing back the debate, the good old debate, but not personal. So what does that take? That takes a lot of you know, training in, again, once again, psychological safety. How do we ask questions? How do we ask a question to show curiosity and listening rather than questioning? So it's, sometimes-
1: it's harder. It's so what I'm hearing you say is it's hard on ideas but soft on people and, yeah. and, uh, and, and how, how we can continue to create an environment that invites a respectful discourse so we don't shout at one another Because we never listen when we're shouting. Never. Um, And perhaps part of that practice that I'm hearing you articulate to our audience and to Phil and I today is also about this notion of listening to simply understand, not listening to respond.
2: Not, Not listening to respond. And also this intense, I'm talking about radical intense attention that you give to each other, that research shown that how you think It really depends on the quality of attention that I give you. So that's a really critical piece of information that that it needs to really practice in any teams and including school. Mm -hmm.
0: Christine, can you pull apart for me the components of attention? And this is is quite often a question we would ask people in a school where they might define a graduate outcome that that, that they want for a student. You sit there and go, what are the behaviours that demonstrate attention?
2: Okay, so very basic behaviour is you give attention, you shut up and listen, meaning you give your non-verbal gesture to not that you are listening, to acknowledge what you hear, but not response until the other person stop sharing. And the other thing is, This is not tangible, but it's critical. It's your palpable respect that you can give when you listen. You listen to the quality of what this person is saying. For example, when feel you talked, you have very different quality with Adriano. for example. You two will agree, I'm sure. Feel what I can hear what you said. This is an example, is your intellectual curiosity in how things are measured so this is your gift so i can hear it see i listen and i can hear it may be wrong you can say wrong completely christine but that's my intention that i hear feel gift is this so this required very very deep listening
0: makes a lot it makes a lot of sense to me when you talk about that there it's it's we we often talk to educators about collecting behaviors because yeah. we'll take an abstract concept like let's say integrity, because quite often schools will say, for example, we want young people of integrity. And you go, what does integrity look does like? Mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you'll try and break that down into different behaviors. And that's a that's a real fill piece. Okay. But then there's an Adriano piece on top of that, which says that every person is home to a unique life. So there are Behaviors which are measurable that indicate, if you like, the collective efficacy, but then there's also the place that the individual is coming from. And because it's a home, you go to those behaviors, but then you go from those behaviors back to the home. And, you know, we're back to that wrestling between the inner self and the outer world. And mm. how do we create the psychological safety for students, for teachers, for families? to do this wrestling because, you know, it's it's hard work.
2: It's it's hard work. And I think I need to bring it back to the purpose because if you were talking about at all this level, individual students and school, and I think it's really critical to really remember why we start school. is the purpose. In the first place and I think every single teacher will have a unique purpose themselves to really think I become a teacher because of this so that will bring back the I guess the humanness or the I'm here to nurture I'm here to teach I'm here to challenge I'm here to contribute those kind of qualities back and then is often those why, big why and passion will bring people together so that you are more patient to listen. You have more, I guess, capacity cognitively to want to understand rather than looking at your to-do list and get very stressed. And there's no safety in that, you feel threatened, right? If, If you look at, you know, oh my God, Uh, how many things I need to do and you instantly your body feel a sense of you know stress so but if we always have a have a morning practice or uh, a ritual to really connect that with your purpose that will slow things down
0: so what I'm what I'm hearing you talk about then is the need for intentionality around all of these components the individual bit the collective bit the human bit the measurement bit and so on and so on does that make sense
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That that completely makes sense is is the intention. And that's probably is a lot of my work as well. I practice intentionality too. So it's about how conscious you are every day and what energy you bring to your life every day when you teach, when you communicate. That is huge.
0: How do we help people to learn to make the implicit explicit? Because, you know, when you were telling your story at the beginning and, you know, you you talking about working with a coach to help you do this that and the other um, and to tell your story and and then all the way through you've been very very you've paid attention to yourself you listen for the voice that's inside but then you are very intentional about emphasizing the pieces of christine that are all about this story that's moving forward how do we help people to learn to do that because people are pretty diffident about being explicit about themselves, um, you know, you sit there. You, know, you were talking about awards, and you know, honestly, that what was going on in my head—that that, you know, I was sitting back and remembering the award that I got when I was seven years old for a football team as the as the kid who t- the, the kid whose mum made sure that they turned up to every practice. You know, I didn't, I did, so I didn't get the prize for being the most competent footballer. I got the I got the thanks for coming prize. I don't know why I tell that story in particular, but but it's it, we are we are diffident about talking about ourselves. We need to learn to talk in a way that is explicit about our story. How do we help people to do that?
2: It's a very big question, Phil. That is a very big question because it takes a lot of self-development to really able to understand who you are and to tell your story. That's actually Takes a long time to get there. Um, so the starting point is to create, I guess, really is create every day, create 10 minutes, just 10 minutes space to tune in to who you are. What does that look like? What did that look like? Is today, like for example, just 10 minutes before you start the day, just really write down this. Today, my best friend self is going to be this. Write that down. So I turn it my intentionality exercise with this. Mm-hmm. So I turn it So if you have, let's say, if you do this every day for six months, mm-hmm. you probably have a very good idea looking at your, your six months entry, what kind of self you want to be. And then to be slowly aware of, are you there yet? or you actually have some self-development that you need to do. Mm -hmm. And there are also reasons why you want to be ideally that, but not something else. So you start that, I guess, ongoing reflection, and also to create space for reflection is really critical. So I'm not giving band-aid approach to any of this. I'm giving Mm -hmm. you the real deal that requires Mm -hmm. deep work.
1: Yeah, I, I, I feel that, um, again, you know, there's this, there's this strong thread around a deep tuning in and a consciousness of self so we can be so much more for others and ourselves and the places, you know, that we, we encounter. And there is a big encounter piece in all this. You know, uh, so much of, of our existence is based on relationship Absolutely. And, and, and the social exchange, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with uh, the people that we encounter, our relationship with places and relationship with God, if that's your persuasion. Yep. Your organisation has partnered with Life Online. Uh, yes. And, and uh, you utilise their, their really interesting wellness index. I think it's really fascinating. And, and they measure employees' psychological fitness and emotional well-being on th- three core dimensions, motivation, psychological safety, and this kind of social licence to operate. Our whole conversation today has covered that spectrum of those three core Absolutely. kind of uh, uh, dimensions. When you get that data... I'm thinking about now. I want to see what this looks like from a from a, a transactional, then to a transformational yeah. context, because lots of humans are good at the transaction, where yes. we, we, we we kind of balk at the idea of the transformational, because that means that that's the introspection that we kind of avoid, and and what you and Phil have just been exploring from the insights that you gain from that wellness well-being index, how yes. do you then shape and craft the kind of very unique, high impact and sustainable psychological fitness and and, and wellness strategy or program for an individual
2: yes so the data will really highlight which area that we need to focus on Mm -hmm. so there are i talk about three dimensions of psychological fitness one is individual collective and organizational level so individual level looks like uh things like the way that we think the way how we feel and the way we act so it's pre- very much simplistic to the sense that to understand you know metacognition emotional health how we feel things and how we show empathy and the third really is about uh, how we connect with our bodies so that we have vitality so my program is like a gym session so it's not long is is half an hour to 45 minutes to get the team um, to really understand some of this concept. And then the follow-up would be practicing. Literally, the team will be practicing showing empathy and talk about listening. And we talk exactly, they will practice propellable respect. How the, what does that look like? How does that sound like? And how does that feel like? And then they need to go away and practice and lock the journal. <laughs> That's a lot of work. So is then, and then we measure this is the individual psychological fitness and the collective fitness is really about how do we disagree Mm -hmm. or even sit into the the meetings to look at how they disagree with each other, Mm -hmm. how they disagree, how conflict, how do they make decisions together? So it's the collective fitness. And when someone show vulnerability, that's the key. How do each other hold this person? If there are emotions in a room, are the team fit enough to welcome that emotions or feel, mm-hmm. frustration, whatever you it is, is that fit enough to, to hold that mm-hmm. and to manage it, right, and make the decision at the same time?
1: Yeah, that's so powerful, Christine, because our capacity to hold the space for that to occur oh. is our great challenge. And I love that. That uh everything comes back to this notion of of the, the psychological safety, of the inclusion safety and the and the learner safety in our you know school contexts. But you that touched upon right at the end there the, the notion of a challenger safety. You know, if the environment allows us to hold the space where we can have a discourse where there is robust disagreement and we're hard on, like I said earlier, hard on ideas, but soft on people. Uh, and, and we create a culture where we give permission for that to occur, it becomes quite healthy because you can flex and you can move. But the moment that that people enter into that space and feel if they challenge a norm or they speak out, if they feel that they're going to be chastised or there's going to be some repercussion, they'll, they, won't, they won't speak. Yeah, it's just, look, this has been a fascinating conversation and we're nearly out of time. So I'm going to ask you my final question before I hand it over to to young Phil, to to wrap this uh, um, terrific dialogue that we're having today. I read this quote from you, and the quote is, you are not solely defined by your cultural norms, gender, and social role. You need to look past all these conditions to know who you really are. We forget about this as we grow up. How can we then, with that quote in mind and and its intentionality, how can we then support young people to discover their why and unlock their inherent possibility.
2: To make them feel safe to experiment. I think young people now, I came across so many young people, like maybe it's our culture always talk about why, and they were just 17 or 16 and say, I need to know my why. (laughs) It's like, it's okay. Like, it's okay to explore the world. I think all is to create that environment for them to experiment, and it's okay to let them fail and come back. And I think that's really critical. And also to help them to understand their magic. When I say magic, it's only unique to them, and that's it. It's not about how society say we want more powerful people because they are more assertive. Who say powerful people are only assertive. So to really help them to see multiple perspective and to get them to really understand I actually really don't like to study but I love drawing what can I do with my creativity I think that also is are you talking to
1: me now Christine
2: (laughs) (laughs) that you're going to really look at their behavior what does that mean to their natural qualities and I think this has a lot to do with parent themselves and the school education themselves to hold back that judgment that's what I mean It's socially conditioned Mm. what is talent it's really you can't just load on students but it's every parties in the system to hold back oh my understanding of talent is this is that really is that really and how do we nurture our kids and students that actually I see something different in you Let's nurture that and look beyond what we have programmed in our head of what is talent or not talent.
0: Um, Christine, you've presented us today with such a beautifully complex and integrated story, a, a, a way to draw together all of the pieces with enough certainty to keep going forward and not so much certainty that we can't grow and stretch and pause and reflect. Um, You talk about the importance of that vulnerable moment. You've given us so many vulnerable moments in the last 50 minutes or so. It's been a real privilege and a real pleasure to attempt to pay attention to you as best I can these days, to listen to your story. You're doing tremendous work at Beyond Story. You combine measurement, you combine story, You're jumping into that space now of thinking about belonging and loneliness and and what we can do in relation to that. One of these days I'd love to have a conversation with you about the the loneliness piece too, but maybe we'll save that for another time. Thank you so much on behalf of the Game Changers listeners and our little podcast um, for coming and sharing your vulnerability and your expertise and your wonderful story with us.
2: Thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. This is one of the best conversations I have had for a very long time is deep. I'm all about in-depth conversation and understanding complexity. So thank you so much for both of your work in doing this and having me today. Thank you.